Star Wars. I <laughs> hate you. <laughs> Star. You're not funny. It may be a little bit funny. Not terribly funny. Roll up! Roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci-fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here your host, Dandre Leyland. Star Wars is coming home, or so the advertising goes. As someone who grew up on these Star Wars comics Marvel put out in the 70s and 80s, the news that Marvel had retaken the right to produce Star Wars comics was greeted, by me anyway, with a surprising amount of joy. I was, however, agog at the amount of vitriol aimed at Marvel and Disney after the announcement was made public, with ardent Dark Horse fans screaming to the heavens that Marvel were going to ruin Dark Horse's fine work. To me, this was an overreaction. It's not that I didn't like a lot of Dark Horse's output. I did. Dark Horse did a great job with the license and produced some great comics, but for me, Star Wars was the Marvel series. It was the first post-movie material we got, and, what's and all, I still love a lot of it today. Most of the criticism always seemed to revolve around Jackson, the big green rabbit, with most of the vocal critics feeling Jackson was an assault on their senses and an attack on their intelligence, despite him only being in a handful of issues. And let's be honest, is he really any sillier than a lot of the creatures we saw in Star Wars? Why this one character has become the poster child for internet fanthink regarding the quality of the Marvel Star Wars series is beyond me, given how high the bar was set in that series for an awful lot of its run. Giving credit where it's due, Dark Horse took the news moderately well and maintained a modicum of class, even as Marvel started slowly doling out information and teasers for their new series. The first thing announced was an omnibus collecting the first 40 or so issues of the initial Marvel run so people can get all bent out of shape over Jackson again. More announcements were forthcoming, with each more provocative than the last. There would be a Mark Wade penned Princess Leia miniseries, there will be a Vader miniseries, and the centrepiece of this new venture, an ongoing new Marvel Comics series. Each new variant cover has been better than the last, with even Joe Quisada's cover being pretty damned awesome, and I'm not that big a fan of Quisada's work. The mood was tempered somewhat by the news that the ongoing would have art by John Cassidy. I find Cassidy's art to be technically brilliant, but rather dull and without flair. I also feel the post-Star Wars setting may be a mistake, given how often it has been mined before. In addition to the first post-Star Wars novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, this will be the third, almost fourth time this period in Star Wars history has been mined. With this in mind, I thought a fun episode might be to just look at the many different post-Star Wars stories that have been, just to confuse the continuity-minded. The first time was, of course, in Star Wars issue 7, cover dated January 1978. At last, the cover boasts beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy. All new Han Solo and Chewbacca on a world the law forgot. 
On the cover by Gil Kane and Tony Dezenuga, Han Solo fires his Buck Rogers-inspired blaster at an off-cover adversary as Chewbacca holds one unconscious body, well, at least I presume he's unconscious, whilst grabbing another by the lapels. Han says, grab a laser gun, Chewie, they've got us surrounded, as a wanted poster of the duo is clearly visible in the background. It's a striking cover, albeit slightly unusual. For one thing, Han bears no resemblance to Harrison Ford, instead looking like you've Robert Urich with a bowl cut. Chewie, likewise, is stockier and has no neck, which means he could host a revival of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I guess. For me, I came to this late. I don't recall when I first read these stories, but I discovered the Marvel comics through the UK reprints, and I came in much later than this. New Planets, New Perils was by Roy Thomas, Howard Chaikin, and Frank Springer. It's interesting to read this now, the first real exposure to a post-Star Wars storyline, and note its similarities to more recent genre offerings like Firefly, as well as its similarity to the Boney M-inspired Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Han Solo basically takes off with Chewie and meets space pirates, a genre trope I would hope long buried nowadays, but still quite prevalent in 70s TV and film sci-fi. It's interesting that Thomas gets Han's money away from him so he can't go and pay Jabba as quickly as possible, as this was a plot point that was left dangling in The Empire Strikes Back. Han was paid his reward at the end of Star Wars, so exactly why he never went and paid Jabba off was never addressed. Obviously, Thomas can't have known about the plot developments of Empire, but it ties in nicely. The rest of the story is a pretty standard science fiction western hybrid, and given George Lucas' influence, I can't really say that that's a bad thing. Han is still very much a rogue in this story, very much out for himself. It very much plays out, ironically, like one of those old episodes of the original Battlestar Galactica, where the cast would find themselves on a redressed western set reenacting old movies like Shane. Equally ironically, again, given Lucas's stated influence, the first extended story the Star Wars comic will attempt is a remake of Seven Samurai, which was itself remade as The Magnificent Seven. This is an inauspicious debut, not bad plot lies, although the art is not pleasing. Chaikin is a great artist whose work is not complemented by Springer's inks. I found it interesting that Thomas chose to ignore Luke, Leia and co and instead tell a one-off Han Solo adventure. Maybe he thought that was easier than trying to tell another Rebellion vs. Empire story that may get in the way of any future sequels, if they even knew Star Wars was going to have a sequel at this point. I do have a soft spot for this Aduba 8 storyline, but for me, the Marvel Star Wars comic doesn't really kick into hyperspace until issue 11, when Archie Goodwin comes on as writer, and Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin make their debut as artists. Worst Splinter of the Mind's Eye, a novel by Alan Dean Foster, takes place, is a little contradictory. The first page details Luke musing on the death of Obi-Wan and his thoughts on the Force, as if the events of the film are very recent, if not immediately after, the destruction of the Death Star. But later on, Darth Vader says it took some time for him to learn who it was who had destroyed the Death Star. These seemingly contradictory elements can be worked into the overall continuity if the reader so desires, especially as the final conversation between Luke, Leia and Vader is pretty tense. It's never referenced in The Empire Strikes Back, which implies that his first meeting with young Skywalker takes place on Bespin, but isn't flatly contradicted either. Vader's first line to Luke in Empire, The Force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet, could be interpreted as going either way. Vader discovering who the rebel was who destroyed the Death Star was covered in Marvel's Star Wars, and I think has also been covered elsewhere as well, so there's already an inherent contradiction as to how Vader got to this point. 
As you may expect, there are no hints about Luke's parentage in the battle at the end of Splinter, although Leia makes a pretty good stab at taking Vader on, which people have used to suggest Leia is a latent Jedi, a supreme piece of retconning. Vader also loses a limb at the end of Splinter, which, while it's not explicitly suggested in Empire, kind of makes him chopping off Luke's hand a kind of tit-for-tat manoeuvre that fits Vader's petty personality. Splinter of the Mind's Eye is an interesting curiosity, and for a number of people reading it, it probably was a direct continuation of the movie. Fans could, if they so desired, make this fit, but I suspect Lucas wasn't really paying attention to what Marvel was doing. The next follow-up to the first film came in the form of the newspaper strip. Now, there's a lot of leeway in this strip, as it was written after The Empire Strikes Back came out, so writer Archie Goodwin had the benefits of knowing where his section of the stories ended. Plus, he could reference events mentioned but not seen in Empire, such as Odd Mantell, an event that has itself had a few different versions told over the years, most famously in the record Escape from Odd Mantell. I remember cutting these out of the newspapers as they came out, but I don't recall which paper they appeared in, and I know I didn't have all of them. Dark Horse Comics re-released all of these comics in a series called Classic Star Wars in August of 1992. The series was nicely packaged with the strips reformatted to be more in line with the layout of a standard comic book, and Dark Horse did at least attempt to make the strips read better, removing extraneous material, making splash pages and so forth, although they were hampered in many cases by what they could do, and the comic does frequently look like what it is, a newspaper strip cut up and pasted into a comic book. Of course, nowadays there are numerous websites and archives devoted to the Star Wars newspaper strips, but at the time, this was the first time in years a lot of us Star Wars fans had seen these strips, and in some cases, the first time we'd read any of these stories at all. The strip was drawn by Al Williamson, an excellent sci-fi artist, and this number one has a new cover by Williamson of Leia still sporting her cinnamon buns hairdo, but thankfully attired in more practical clothing, and what we presume to be Luke, aiming blasters at a scout walker on a boggy planet. The Millennium Falcon swoops in from around some trees and looks peculiarly out of proportion. I say we assume this to be Luke, as the figure on the cover has a lightsaber hilt on his belt, but has brown hair rather than the blonde Luke sported in the comics, and is dressed somewhat like Han Solo. Williamson wasn't at all bad with likenesses, so I'll be charitable and presume this is an aberration or a colouring cock-up. These early strips are collectively known as The Bounty Hunter of Odd Mantell. The story finds the Rebellion still located on the fourth moon of Yavin, but Luke and Leia are searching for a new base. An Imperial patrol finds their ship and destroys it, and they then spend the night in a cat-and-mouse chase with Imperials before Han, in defiance of Rebellion orders, naturally, shows up and rescues them. The Falcon is damaged in one of Han's reckless manoeuvres, and he takes the ship to Ard Mantell for repairs, but Ard Mantell airspace is cluttered with Imperial Star Destroyers. Of course, Ard Mantell proves problematic for Solo and company when he is recognised by a bounty hunter named Skor. After an argument with Han, Leia storms off and is followed by Luke. Both end up captives of Skor, who uses them as bait for Han. This is an interesting, if choppy, read. It was the post-Star Wars story I was least familiar with, and having only read it once before when it came out, I remembered very little about it. It arguably holds up better than both Issue 7 of the Marvel comic and Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Unlike those two stories, this has all of the regulars playing a substantial role, and whilst not specifically stating that it takes place directly after Star Wars, that is the implication. 
The Rebellion are still located on Yavin 4, which I would have presumed they'd have evacuated ASAP, given that Vader survived the Battle of Yavin and the Empire knew exactly where they are. Some unusual choices are made with the narrative. Goodwin has Luke and Leia discovered by the Imperials, but next we see their napping in a tree, having escaped off-panel, and some of the scene transitions are rather abrupt. Still, Goodwin has a good and natural feel for the characters, and Williamson's art is beautiful in places. He's obviously using The Empire Strikes Back as his photo reference rather than Star Wars, but it all looks and feels correct and proper. Based upon this reading, the newspaper strips should have a better reputation than they appear to have. Dark Horse Comics had the license to Star Wars for a good number of years, but for some reason never set a comic directly after the events of the first film. For the most part, Dark Horse stayed away from this specific era, presumably because they themselves had published the Marvel comic series as trade paperbacks and omnibuses. But Dark Horse always seemed a tad dismissive of the Marvel series, despite happily making money off it. To this end, they published their own Star Wars comics set after the events of Star Wars, and corralled writer Brian Wood and artist Carlos de Anda to rewrite their version of the events subsequent to the Battle of Yavin. There was a stench of showing Marvel how to do it right about this project that was a little distasteful, but wrapped up in a rather impressive Alex Ross cover as it was, there was no way I wasn't at least giving it a look. There was an interesting irony in that this would ultimately end up being one of Dark Horse's final series of Star Wars comics, before the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney meant that Marvel, also owned by Disney, reacquired the rights. What should have been the jewel in the Dark Horse crown became its epitaph. There's a feeling of being the done that about this issue that permeates all the way through. A lot of the EU material was about looking forward, expanding the Star Wars universe in new ways, and this felt like a retrograde step. It follows the same starting point as both the Marvel series and the newspaper strip, the location of a new rebel base, but this is a damp squib. We know they'll end up on Hoth, something we didn't know in the Marvel series, and something the newspaper strip made a point of already mentioning. As such, the prequel nature of this story feels old hat before the reader has turned to the first page. It doesn't help that the opening pages, a recon mission for Leia and Luke, is dripping with melancholy. Luke is upset over the death of Obi-Wan and his aunt and uncle. Leia is upset over the destruction of Alderaan and how many funerals they've been to recently. And Wood even mentions that the destruction of the Death Star doesn't seem to have bothered the Empire that much. There's a defeatist attitude to the writing before we even begin that has none of the optimism of Star Wars. Luke and Leia are ambushed and Leia crash lands on a planet where she rather brutally shoots a stormtrooper who's crashed with her and then, in true James Bond fashion, she shoots him once again in the head just to make sure he's dead. It's nice to see Leia as a pilot and a good one and bringing back her more ruthless side was a bit of a shock but a welcome surprise. She did, after all, shoot first in Star Wars and makes no bones about considering herself a soldier. Wood captures Han Solo's cockiness in a scene where he basically tells Chewie that Jabba won't dare come after him now he's with the Rebellion, and this tries to set up an overall continuity with Return of the Jedi, with one Mothma and Admiral Akbar being the Rebellion leaders, which seems to leave General Dudonna out in the cold. Likewise, it's odd to see the Empress so concerned with the cost of building the Death Star, and how its destruction has affected Imperial finances. Whilst it's nice to see the Death Star destruction did at least have some effect on the Empire, they seem to suffer no such setback in the Empire Strikes Back, it seems a petty consideration for the Emperor. 
An interesting idea would have been to have the Emperor raise taxes on the core worlds and blame the rebellion for it to pay for a new Death Star. Nothing gets people riled up more than raised taxes. Vader is far and away the most interesting character, even if the Emperor does treat him as a lackey throughout. He still seemed to be conflicted slightly, although there are hints that he longs to overthrow the Emperor and take control himself, so there's no real redemptive angle to his thoughts. On the whole, though, this lacks the grandeur, excitement and during do of Star Wars. It's all a little bleak and obsessed with amping up the angst of all the characters. A feeling of ennui hangs over the entire issue, which I suppose is appropriate, but one shouldn't come away from a Star Wars story feeling miserable. Even the end of Revenge of the Sith or The Empire Strikes Back had hopeful notes to them, but this feels very low-key. It's a revamped Battlestar Galactica version of Star Wars, and as such, it doesn't really work. The feeling I had, though, completing reading this issue was this was just well-mapped ground. What is the current obsession with looking back, with filling other people's shoes? Where are new stories, even with old characters? Where are the George Lucases and Gene Roddenberrys and Steven Spielbergs of today? I have no problem with more Star Wars, but I want it to be more Star Wars, not just a retread of what has gone before. Films and TV now seem obsessed with simply telling the same stories with a new lick of paint, instead of forging new paths. I'm optimistic for Episode 7, and I hope that, once the film is released, the new Marvel book will start filling in the gaps between Jedi and the new film, especially given the jettisoning of the expanded universe. I think it's time for some new stories. Which, of course, brings us to Star Wars Issue 1, as recently released by Marvel Comics. The circle is now complete, as Vader may say. This is as far away from a new story as one could possibly get. Released with a flurry of publicity and over 100 variant covers, the issue was written by Jason Aaron with art by John Cassidy. The cover I have, the more familiar standard cover, follows the company line regarding the setting for this comic directly after Star Wars. Luke is wearing the outfit he wore for the throne room scene, Leia has the headphones hairdo, and Han sports the short sleeve jacket he wore for most of the first movie. It's okay, but Luke looks a little squat. Book 1 is called Skywalker Strikes, and the correct tone is set from the get-go, with the blue font of A Long Time Ago in a Galaxy Far, Far Away, then the familiar Star Wars logo covering two pages, and then a crawl setting up the story before the issue finally opens with a shot of space, and then a starship flying in over the camera as we pan down to the planet. We then zoom through cities and such, and it all feels very Star Wars, so kudos to Marvel for that. The story then follows Han, Luke and Leia infiltrating an Imperial stronghold under the guise of being an envoy from Jabba the Hutt. They are of course here to blow up the place as it's the biggest weapons manufacturing plant in the area and under Imperial control. One of the things that stuck out about this story, the cover notwithstanding, is that this isn't taking place directly after Star Wars, which leaves plenty of wiggle room to include other EU stories, including the Marvel and Dark Horse stuff. I would say that this takes place closer to Empire than the end of Star Wars, given that Cassidy draws Leia without the puppy fat that Carrie Fisher still carried in Star Wars, and she's wearing the plaid she wore in Empire. Other than trying to place this, which is folly at this point, let's just address the issue. Overall, this was really quite enjoyable and felt far more like Star Wars than the recent Brian Wood series from Dark Horse. Luke frees some slaves, set himself apart from the Jedi and the Phantom Menace who didn't think freeing slaves was part of their job description, so ten points to Luke there. Aaron also captures the banter between Han and Leia very well. Chewbacca has some nice moments, tracking Darth Vader in his crosshairs, and Leia, ordering him to take the shot, is a great and suspenseful scene. 
Especially effective is how Vader survives this, picking up two poor stormtroopers using the Force and then using them as a shield against the crossbow blast is a great Vader bit, at last bringing the ruthless Darth Vader back after a number of Dark Horse stories focused on the Anakin side of the equation. Vader also knows here who the rebel that destroyed the Death Star is, which could imply the earlier stories where Vader found out are still in continuity. Han's cocksure attitude is also on display when he steals an Atat walker, telling Leia that he can drive anything. The issue ends with Luke apparently about to confront Vader. This was a quick and moderately satisfying read. Aaron captures the characters' voices and general Star Wars tone well, and the issue is, for me anyway, one of the best Star Wars comics I've read in quite a while. My issues tended to be, as I suspected they would be, with Cassidy's art, which, whilst pretty spectacular in places, suffers from the stiffness I always see in his work. His likenesses are pretty good, but his look, as on the cover, looks a little bit squat, and his chewy C-3PO and Vader seem a little bit off. All that being said, I actually really enjoyed this issue a lot more than I was expecting to. I had a certain trepidation about this, after all, as Thomas Wolfe said, he can't go home again, but I was pleasantly surprised. With a little look, the Vader and Leia series that are previewed in the back of this issue will be as good. Couple of random bits of business whilst I have a shorter episode than usual. I've recently read a couple of books, you know, those things with no pictures in them but lots of words, and, as I always like it when people recommend things, I thought I'd devote a little bit of time to them and see if anyone else had any good reading recommendations that aren't comics. I'd like to do a few more episodes of this show about books, but they take longer to prep, so they'll, they'll happen when they happen. Firstly, I need to throw a shout-out to Scott Rifen award-winning radio host and anchor of Dinner for Geeks with Ryan, Jeff and Rom, who sent me a copy of V, the second generation by Kenneth Johnson, as mentioned on a previous episode of this show. As of this recording, I have just started reading it, and so far it's pretty damn good. So a huge thank you to Scott for that, and I will report back when I've actually read it all. The other book I recently read was The Galactic Whirlpool, a Star Trek novel by David Gerald. This isn't a new book, having originally been published in the late 1970s, but I happened across it on eBay for a quid and thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. I used to devour Star Trek novels, easily reading one a week when I was in high school, but the proliferation of them, plus the fact that they pulled a comics trick of having lots of them cross over, put me off a little. There also came a point where every single one of them felt like a sequel to an earlier episode, or featured the return of some incidental character, and I got a little bored of that. I preferred the novels that just told cool adventures. I didn't mind if these adventures filled in some blanks, like the excellent Lost Years by J.M. Dillard, which was set in between the series and the first movie, but by the time you're bringing back the third red shirt on the left from episode 38, my interest is starting to wane. However, Gerald has a reputation as being an excellent writer, and although The Trouble with Tribbles, the episode we wrote for the original series, is far from my favourite episode, I thought, well, for a quid, what can go wrong? Very little, as it turns out. The Galactic Whirlpool follows the crew of the Enterprise on an adventure that could take place anywhere in the original five-year mission. Lieutenant Kevin Riley, who was in a couple of episodes of the first series of the show, shows up, but other than that, this is a straightforward first contact tale about a race of humans on a generational vessel who are encountered by the Enterprise and the ship and crew's attempts to help them readjust. This was a pretty excellent read, proving that many of the problems I had with Tribbles, such as the overbearing humour and the out-of-character Captain Kirk, were aberrations. In this book, Gerald deftly handles character and plot to produce a rollicking good read, with a story that the show just couldn't have afforded to do, but nevertheless feels like old-school Star Trek. 
Gerald's descriptions of the characters' mannerisms and gestures are note-perfect, as is the dialogue, and this is, in its own way, just as funny as any other episode of Trek that did comedy. It does beg the question how much the actors bring to the roles, as Gerald is clearly describing Shatner as Kirk and Nimoy as Spock to such a delightful level one can't help but see the actors in one's mind eye as you read. It's a proper science fiction story as well, and Gerald devotes a lot of pages to the practicalities of how some of the technology works. To be honest, this is where I felt the book fell down a little. I don't really care what exactly Uhura is doing when she sticks that funny silver thing in her ear, nor am I really bothered by exactly how a transporter works, but Gerald seems obsessed with telling us. On the whole, though, this was a great read. There's a great chapter about Kirk surrendering as well, which ultimately makes the point know thy enemy very eloquently. Some of Gerald's punning is a little over the top. The librarian on the Enterprise, for example, is referred to by his nickname, Specs. But on the whole, I recommend this wonderful slice of old-school Trek, especially if you can pick it up for cheap. The other book I read recently was Craven's Last Hunt by Neil Clyde. I actually bought this under false pretenses. The Amazon listing stated, and still does, that J.M. DeMatteis wrote this, and that it was based on his six-issue story arc of the same name that ran in all the Spider-Man comic books in the late 1980s. I was looking forward to reading how DeMatteis expanded his original story into a novel and how the book would fur without the exemplary art of Mike Zeck. Sadly, my hopes were dashed when I received the novel and saw that DeMatteis hadn't written it at all. Still, I read it, hoping to enjoy it and keeping an open mind, and I was still quite interested in the mechanics of how a comic book story would have fleshed out into novel form. Having read it, I did wonder what the point was. I'm a big fan of movie novelizations when written by good writers like Matthew Stover or Alan Dean Foster, and movie novelization becomes something more than the sum of its parts. It enhances the film, adding details and depth not present in the movie. Peter David did great things with the novels to Batman Returns and the Spider-Man films, and Vonda McIntyre wrote some great books based upon Star Trek 2, 3, and 4. George Geip greatly expanded the story to Gremlins. Sadly, this doesn't work as well here. The novel is almost a beat-for-beat translation of the comic, and any added bits simply come from other comics, such as Ned Leeds' Funeral, from a completely different issue of Amazing Spider-Man. There's some retconning from the post-One More Day story as well, as Peter and Murray Jane in this novel are simply dating, rather than being married, as they were in the original issues. Clyde writes well, but there's really nothing here for people who've read the comics. It's set in a nebulous continuity, presumably hoping to bring in viewers of Sam Raimi's movies, or people too snobbish to read comics in the first place. But the alterations, such as Spider-Man wearing his red and blue costume instead of the more era-appropriate black and white one, are obviously made as a sop to those readers who come from the film. But this ends up having a lot of comics baggage for non-comics readers to have to endure, but doesn't really fit in with the comics enough for comics readers to enjoy. As such, it kind of pleases neither audience. As a comics reader, I've already read this story, but back then it had some lovely art accompanying it. And as a non-comics Spider-Man fan, there's a lot of backstory to have to slog through. I really wanted to like this, but I'm left with the burning sensation that these kinds of adaptations are a little pointless. If I were going to recommend Craven's Last Hunt, I'd recommend the collected version of the comics rather than this novel. Uh, Before we wrap up, because we're still running quite short, we may as well touch on a few emails. As usual, if you wish to email the show, or me, uh, I'm still using HeyKidsComics at virginmedia.com. The first email that I have is entitled Another Revamp, and comes from John M. Wilson, 
who hosts the Avengers Inspirations podcast. Andrew, John opens, your new show has been fun and a welcome addition to my podcast feed. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. In my mind, it's a sister show to Hey Kids Comics, another show I listen to, with hosts whose voices and accents are remarkably similar to yours. It's weird, that, isn't it? Very odd. Probably just random coincidence. Yes, yes, just coincidence. I shouldn't generalise that all northern British people named Andy Leyland sound alike. It's probably a safe bet, though, John. But to the point of my missive, I hadn't before considered the notion of revamps in TV being a thing. But now you've described a few, I thought I'd add Enterprise's revamp as Star Trek Enterprise to the list. The third season was a major change for the show with its Zindi arc that lasted all year. Stakes were higher, the mission was grim, and the optimistic anticipation from the first two seasons was completely abandoned in a revenge story that left a lot of fans behind. Of course, this was followed by another revamp for season four, when two major creators for the Star Trek novel line were brought in, namely Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. That fourth season did an interesting job. The original premise of the series had been to show the road from our present day to the world of Kirk's Star Trek. Instead, they built an era of Trek history that went contrary to many expectations. So season four undertook the task of bridging the gap between Archer Trek and Kirk Trek. I thought they were handling the job magnificently, and my viewing experience moved from fur to moderate enjoyment to excitement about each episode, just in time for the axe to fall, bringing to a close almost two decades of regular production of Star Trek on TV. I was depressed at the time, but only because the last season was so good. Was the revamp successful? I wouldn't call the season three changes successful, no, but season four turned the rudder enough that I think the show could have become something truly great, but I guess they never managed to get the audience numbers back. Thanks for listening, and thanks for listening. John M. Wilson, Avengers Inspirations Podcast. Well, thank you for emailing in, John. Yes, Star Trek Enterprise definitely counts as a TV revamp, because it seems from the very beginning they couldn't actually decide what they wanted that show to be, because it seemed more like it was a prequel to the movies then it was a prequel to The Cage. Uh, I, I gave up on Enterprise, I think, midway through season one, but enough people keep telling me that season four is interesting, that one day, if I, convince, if I can convince Angela to, to let me, I'll, uh, I'll watch the final season. Uh, Starsky and Hutch is the title from Chris Franklin's email. Hello, Chris. Hello, Andy. I enjoyed your Starsky and Hutch episode, despite having not seen an episode in decades. I have very vague memories of the show. I know we watched it in first run and I had the small Corgi Junior car, but that's about it. I don't recall it in heavy rerun rotation anywhere around here. I wish I had the Migos, but surprisingly I didn't have them then. And I haven't picked them up now, despite having a decent Mego collection. I saw Paul Michael Glazer on a reverse mortgage commercial a few years back. That's the first I'd seen of him since that better-off-forgotten movie remake of a decade ago. He's in good company as no less than the Fonz himself. Henry Winkler is also hocking reverse mortgages. Our TV heroes never die. They just get old and market to even older folks than us. Um, I'm, I'm at a loss there, Chris, because I have no idea what a reverse mortgage is. But Paul Michael Glazer and Henry Winkler both have something else in common. They're both over here a lot because they have written children's novels. Winkler's novel is uh, aimed at dyslexic kids, and he actually got uh, ooh, something, I think an MBE off the Queen, for uh, his services to dyslexic children. So Winkler tends to, to be on uh, interviewed on breakfast television a lot, which was the last place I saw Paul Michael Glazer being interviewed on breakfast television, because he was over here doing... Um, um, London theatre revival of um, If I Were a Rich Man. What's that called? Karen, what that play's called? Oh, 
What is it? If I were a rich man, what's that play? Can't remember for the life of me what it's called. It's going to bug me. Topol's in the film. Oh dear God! Anyway, you know what I mean from the song. Anyway, Chris's email continues. Antonio Fargas had a funny role in the black exploitation spoof. I'm going to get you, sucker! Which has one of the best titles of a film ever. Uh, he was basically playing a huggy bear who didn't change with the times in the late 80s. His acceptance speech at the Pimp of the Year Award was a standout for me. Yeah, Antonio Fargas was on uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. So, you know, maybe he's got a post-Starsky career over here as well. Uh, Chris continues, I was always weirded out when I remember David Soules in the Star Trek episode The Apple. With all that orange makeup, it's no wonder I had a hard time recognising him. Chris, something interesting. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for your email. Something interesting. I found it interesting. I don't know whether you lot would. Starsky and Hutch takes place in the same continuity as Dirty Harry, which David Soule was in Magnum Force. I thought that was fun, because there's a couple of episodes where they refer to uh, an Inspector Callahan in San Francisco. It's probably the kind of thing only I find interesting, but never mind. Uh, the final email that I've got to cover for today is Palace of Glittering Delights number 17. V Feedback is from Mai Yi Chun. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hi, Mr. Leyland. Oh, call me Andy Mai Yi. Uh, I really enjoyed your coverage of V in the Palace of Glittering Delights number 17. The combination of your personal experiences, your insightful and humorous observation, and the comprehensive history about V in all its incarnations made for an excellent podcast. I especially appreciated the musical interludes highlighting the different themes that have represented the show. I actually didn't see the first two miniseries when they first aired on network television. Some years later, I watched both miniseries played back-to-back over five days on a local TV station, WTXX20, here in Connecticut, USA. This became an annual tradition for a few years, and I remember looking forward to the week of V as a high school student. I don't disagree with your assessment about the heavy-handedness in which the allegories were presented. However, I can recall being deeply affected as a teen by the morally grey concepts that were introduced into the mix of rollicking sci-fi action and melodrama. I still find a lot of the intellectual and emotional resonance in the themes that V explored, such as totalitarianism and fascism creeping its way into a society, the sacrifices called upon for the greater good, and antagonists who were not depicted as homogenous, faceless villains. I found glimmers of promise in the 2009 V TV series, particularly in the earlier episodes of the first season. There was fertile ground in which to cover post-9-11 issues about terrorism, security and freedom, but the series never became more than an average show, in my opinion. I'll just step out of my Yee's email for a second there. Uh, it, uh, I thought Battlestar Galactica did the whole post-9-11 thing much better, and V just felt like it was very desperately trying to be the revamped Battlestar rather than an updated version of V. And I just, it was a good cast, but I kind of lost interest before Mark Singer and Jane Badler showed up, which was a shame, but, you know, I think it only lasted a couple of seasons, didn't it? My Yee's email continues, Did you ever watch Alien Nation or the Kenneth Johnson TV show? I found both to be fantastic science fiction allegories about immigrants, racism and human nature. One of the aspects from the pilot that I found ironic, funny and sad all at the same time was seeing human minorities among those ostracising the newcomers. However, hope also appeared in the humans who stood up for these immigrants. The scene from the pilot episode where Matt Sykes encounters people preventing Emily Francisco from going to school gets me choked up every time. Perhaps Alien Nation would make a good topic for a future Palace of Glittering Delights. Take it easy, my ye chun. Well, that's actually a very good suggestion, because I loved Alien Nation. Uh, I don't think I have it. I'd probably have to see if it was cheap on DVD, and again, pry the television away from the missus. 
<laughs> He's just looking at me. Uh, I've never watched any of the post-series movies. So I'd, uh, I'd have to catch up with them and see how they did. But yeah, I loved Alienation when it first heard in... Um, God, was that in 1990? Jeez, that seems such a long time ago. Uh, anyway, that's it. Email sack is empty and I've finished discussing what I was set out to discuss today. Thank you all those that have emailed in. If you wish to email in, as I've already mentioned... The email address is heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. And if you, like my ye, have a suggestion for a topic, um, I'm always open to suggestions, provided I can, A, get a hold of what it is that you, you want me to, to talk about. You can drop me a line. Let me know. Thank you very much, and I'll be back whenever. Bye-bye.